Well, let's now turn in uh, our worship to the reading of God's word today, coming to us from the Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And you say, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Out of the mud and mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you have planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appealed, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Amen. I need my timer to make sure that when the time's up, I'm up. So uh, bear with me for just a second. Thank you, church, for uh, having me here today. Again, I'm Ray Donatucci. My kids and my family sort of grew up in this church since uh, the late 1900s, the ancient days. Um, today, we're talking about a new song. You ever play uh, kind of the party game where you ask the question, okay, let's say it's a sharing time. What song represents who you are today, how you're feeling, what you're doing? And people go around and share a song that sort of represents who they are on the inside. Or um, we often play the game, what, what songs would be in the soundtrack of your life? And you go back into your childhood or your teenage years. You know, I just started noticing the opposite sex when the Beatles started singing, She Loves You, you know? And I, to this day, I, I can't hear that 
song without cringing, that kind of junior high cringe that we all get sometimes when we think about how awkward we were back then. But, but there's songs that sort of echo who we were then or what we were going through then. And that's sort of the theme of, of my message today is the song that we are singing. Um, I happen to be mildly addicted to Bruce Springsteen music. Don't hold that against me if that's a problem. But what I find amazing about the boss is that he's written prolifically. He's got all these songs, but he seldom plays the song the same way. Uh, Born to Run driving beat, uh, quick lyrics, very distinct saxophone, love the music. It usually starts out his concert because it gets everybody up and going. And then one time I heard him sing that song with an acoustic guitar and a harmonica, no band. And he slowed the song down very slow, and it developed this hauntingly sad feel to it that the original version never had. In fact, I, I listened to it, and it haunted me. I just looked for it on YouTube. I recorded it. I play it all the time now because it sort of resonates with something inside of me. That's a little bit of what's going on in my message today. We read Psalm 40. There are 150 psalms. There are three kinds of psalms. The first kind is everything is awesome. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He's picked us. He's given us a land. He's blessed us. Our enemies have turned tail. Oh gosh, life is good. Isn't God great? Hallelujah. There are those psalms. And that song is sung a certain way. Then there's Psalm 40. Things are terribly wrong. I'm in a deep, dark pit. But I called out to God, and He answered me, and He took me up out of that pit. Woohoo! Isn't God good? Let's sing. That's a different kind of song. And it forms a kind of equation, if I could say that, that this way, that we, as the people of faith, tend to hold on to very tightly. We're in trouble. We pray. God finds us. He solves the problem. We sing hallelujah. That's the second kind of psalm. But there's a third kind of psalm that's more equivalent to uh, Bruce Springsteen singing Born to Run slowly. Can we see uh, Psalm 88 up here? This is my paraphrase. You may want to go and read Psalm 88 for yourself to make sure that I'm staying close to the text, but here's what I think the psalmist is saying. 
Oh, Lord, I believe you love me, but I've been on my knees to you night after night. I'm so troubled and in so much agony. My pleading is never far from my conscious thoughts. I feel like I have one foot in the grave. I'm in a deep and dark place. I'm absolutely without hope, including in you. I feel you put me here. You really don't seem to care. I've served you, obeyed you, loved you, and yet I am flooded with terrors. Actually, let me be blunt. You've abandoned me. I'm alone. And this feels like it's your fault. I have to say that if I said that in a sermon, I would imagine the church kind of going, we better put him on a prayer list. Uh, he needs to enter a Bill Mayer recovery group. Um, what weak faith? Doesn't he know the Bible? Well, because of the equation. Bad things happen. I pray. God meets me, solves the problem. Praise God. You know, that happens a lot. Well, we pray and the sick are healed. The conflict that we're in gets resolved. The disappointments we're facing somehow get resolved in a way that we're no longer as disappointment. The confusion that grips us finds some clarity, and we say, thank you, Lord. But you know, other times we pray and the sick die. The disappointment intensifies. The confusion thickens. And we go, where are you, God? What's going on? I prayed. Do you know there are moms and dads who are begging God for the lives of their children right now? And all they hear is silence. The first time I went to uh, Anschutz Cancer Center with my wife, we were given, uh, you walk into the infusion center, and we walk up to the desk, and we're given a chair number. And then we walk through a door, and there's a win windows right in front of you. And you turn this way, and there is a hallway that runs the length of this building. And windows are all down the left side of this hallway, looking out at the mountains. And then there are these infusion chairs lined up the windows with curtains that you can pull around. We were given chair 37. I had to walk by 36 chairs of people, some children, some brothers, some sisters, some moms, some dads, some grandparents, sitting in these chairs with needles in their arms, with 
most of them had somebody with them, talking with them, reading with them, being with them. But some sat there alone, and we walked by 36 of them. You know what I thought? I thought, if we took the last Young Life Club talk that I had given just a few days earlier, and I gathered the people in those chairs and gave them the club talk, I felt ashamed that somehow what I said in that talk would not be very meaningful to people in a life and death struggle. It just felt too thin, too superficial, too easy. The, uh, the Jews had a name for this dark place of desperation. They called that place Sheol. It was the place that the dead went. Uh, in their cosmology, when you died, you went to Sheol, where you slept in darkness. And you waited for the resurrection of the dead when this new age came. But it wasn't just for the dead. The living could also find themselves in Sheol. When you're in a place of absolute abject desperation and you cry out to God and you get no answer, you're in Sheol. Sheol's a dark place. It's a place of abandonment, of aloneness and alienation. It's a place you can't get yourself out of. When life is out of control and all the willpower in the world won't change what you're up against, you're in Sheol. Uh, later, monks would call this the dark night of the soul. It's the same sort of theme of where do you go when you feel abandoned? In my own journey, people would say to me, you know, Ray, remember, everything happens for a reason. Nothing is broken that God can't fix. In fact, what kind of father gives his son a stone when his son asks for a loaf of bread? Don't negatively confess. Only say the positive. Believe what you think God's going to do and keep confessing that. We couldn't, for a while, even use the word cancer in my home. Because that would be negatively confessing and giving into the negative until I realized there's a kind of toxic positivity. When you talk to cancer, like an NBA player, smack talks or opposition, that's how you're supposed to handle it. And Our God is a God of yes. Or here's a, a number of passages. Keep repeating these passages. Tell yourself the truth. That's the advice I got. Now, 
Hear me on this before you start throwing tomatoes at me. There are times that works. That's right. That's healthy. That's faithful. That's godly. But there are times it doesn't. The sick still die. The fire still gets whipped by 80-mile-an-hour winds. The confusion thickens. The abundant life doesn't feel quite as abundant. In my darkest moments, sounds came out of my body that sounded strange to me. I, I didn't know a person could hurt that much. And then, jokingly, I would turn to, the God, to God and say, no wonder you have so few friends. <laughs> well, look at what's going on here. The, um, let me read this. In Every Life, this is by Maria Popovov in, uh, in her book, Brain Pickings. In every life, there comes a time when we are raised to the bone of our resilience by losses beyond our control. Uh, the spiritual scaffolding of our lives just crumble. Lacerations of the heart that feel barely bearable, that leave us bereft of solid ground. What then? Well, we as Christians say, oh, God is good. And he is good. Hang with me here. The circumstantial evidence for the goodness of God is inconclusive. For every sunrise on Long's Peak, I'll raise you an aspect of medicine called pediatric oncology. For every moment of just being overwhelmed with the love of God, there's a wildfire whipped by winds. And so the jury can tend to be out. And it, the early church saints addressed this head on. I mean, they were dying left and right. But they addressed this head on. They, they said, here, God is good. He's loving. He's powerful. He's closer than our next breath. He has not left us orphans. He's given us his word. He's died for us. He's risen for us. He's good. Here, life sucks. Death is, a, is so common. People suffer purposelessly however you say that word, meaninglessness. Uh, children, parents, 
Life's hard. Suicide. Suicide rails on the top of buildings. Pediatric oncology. 37 infusion chairs. And we, as a church, and I'm saying general church, not just grace, we tend to say, no, don't think negatively. Don't think negatively. Affirm the positive. And hear me, it's good to affirm the positive. But sometimes that affirmation comes at the denial of reality. And what, what the early church saints did was they said, both are true. They called it an antimony. We would say a paradox. Is God good? Yes. Do bad things happen to people? Yes. And somehow, those have to be held together. We have to live a faith that holds them here. We use the term bittersweet all the time. Uh, the ancients used a word, uh, a phrase, uh, a, bright, a bright sadness. I termed, I think this is original to me, with my journey, the sacred chaos. It's where joy and grief get intermixed, and they're not easily disentangled. In fact, the real art form, I think, in faith is how do we hold them together? without appearing as if we're falling off on one side or the other. The uh, contemporary saying is, it's all good, it's all good. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's just not. And we say that because there's goodness and there's not goodness, and we hold that together. The opposites don't cancel one another out. Uh, the difficulty for me is that the negative side of the equation has this ability to grab a person and rock their world. And any bolt in your life that's loose, it wobbles right out. It's as if, to change the metaphor, there's a string hanging from your sweater, and this thing grabs that string, and the whole sweater unravels. That's what this side of the equation does. So how do I respond to the enormous gap between my expectations and how God works and my current reality? between my hopes and my dreams and the life I find myself living. That tension humbles the most gifted and committed believers. I'd say this, we're left with a choice. 
It's uh, said that when a heart breaks, it breaks one of two ways. It breaks apart, like throwing a glass on the floor and just shattering across the floor, or it breaks open. When a heart breaks, it can make you harder, tougher, more withdrawn, smaller, more protective. Or it could open, it could expand you, it could tenderize you, it could make you more capacious, make you more grace-filled. There's the choice. The choice is to stand with your fist at God going, where are you? Or, I'm small, you're big, I trust you. The word vulnerable um, comes from a Latin word meaning to wound. We are woundable. We're small, we're fragile. The world is hard, has a lot of sharp edges. I grew up, and this is, this is on me, this is on me, my faith became a what, what I believed to be true. And could I define my truth biblically, theologically, in a sound way? So faith for me was a what. And I've discovered through getting beaten up in life that faith is a who. It's not what I believe as much as it is in whom do I trust. I had us pray um, or say the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, there's a line, he descended into hell. It truly, Sheol in Hebrew got translated to Hades in Greek, which got translated to hell in English. It's unfortunate because the Cretes originally said he descended into Hades, which is he descended into Sheol. The psalmist says, you know, where can I go for my love? Where can I run from your presence? If I go into Sheol, even there you are. Can we put uh, that slide up, please? Here's a, this is a sketch by William Blake on the Trinity that has become so deeply meaningful to me. Jesus entered our Sheol. He doesn't solve it. He doesn't fix it. He doesn't abolish it. He enters it. He's woundable with us. I will never forsake you. The invisible string 
connects us to Jesus. And just as the Father is embracing the suffering Christ, Christ embraces us. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. In the end, darkness is not explained. Suffering's not explained, but it is defeated. The love of God has the last word. If I could indulge you on a story to take us out of here. And I don't mean this story to trivialize the topic for today. I'll try to bring it around here. I'm pretty sure most of you as a family have had the camping trip from hell. And by that, I don't mean Sheol or Hades. I mean hell, okay? It's a camping trip where you think it's a good idea to take the family out camping. So you borrow a friend's tent and you get enough uh, sleeping bags together and you go buy hot dogs and you get uh, marshmallows and Hershey chocolate and graham crackers and popcorn and you drive somewhere and you're not going to car camp. So you're going to hike a little ways in and uh, you get there and some of the family gathers wood and starts building the fire and you discover you probably should have set the tent up before you left the house to make sure you knew how to pitch the tent because now it's awfully confusing and you're pitching the tent and as you're pitching the tent you hear a clap of thunder and it starts to rain. The tent's not up, you're frantically putting the tent up, the rain becomes a downpour, puts the fire out, you get in the tent, everybody's soaking wet, the tent is flopping in the wind, but you're in there, you're trying to eat s'mores without roasted marshmallows, toasted marshmallows, but you know, you can make the best out of that until you realize that the runoff from the hillside is coming right through the tent and all the sleeping bags are soaking wet. So now what do you do? You get your flashlight out, you take the tent down in the rain, you throw it into your pack, you hike back to the car, you're muddy from the hike, the flashlight batteries go dead, you get to the car and you spend the night in the car. Fortunately, you got a heater in the car, but everybody's soaking wet, muddy, miserable. On top of that, mom snores all night. The next morning, it's you uh, first light, you, Dad, drives to the nearest greasy spoon where you go in for breakfast, mostly to be able to go to the restroom, to wash up, to clean your face and hands, to look at all presentable. And then you go eat a meal, which in my family you say, you rent a meal at a greasy spoon, you don't buy it. Think about that for a minute. And, and then you drive home. And it is a horrendous experience. Flash forward 20 years. You're sitting around the Thanksgiving table. The kids are now adults. You're sitting there talking about family memories. And one of the kids goes, remember the camping trip from hell? And everybody bursts into laughter. And they go, oh my gosh, remember how mad dad got? Oh yeah, I heard words from dad I never heard before. Yeah, and mom snored all night. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. No, I didn't. You know, and you get in this argument. But in that moment, what was a truly miserable experience 
becomes an experience that bonds a family together in their story and in their love. Now, that's why I said I'm not trying to trivialize the topic. But could that same process be true for the things we suffer now? Is it possible, not in a superficial way and not in a way that denies the pain, the egregiousness of what we go through, but is it possible that one day from a different perspective we'll look at that and see it with new eyes? So for now we sing a song maybe in a minor key. It's a new song. We're affirming God. We're also affirming the difficulties of life. And our song is, could possibly be in a minor key. One day that will change. We end prayers with amen. The word amen is a declaration of trust. It's as if we're saying in that word, amen, we're done talking now, Lord. We've said our piece. We now put this matter in your hands. We trust you with it. That's what we say when we say amen. So may I close in a word of prayer. It's prayer, it's actually a passage that comes out of Habakkuk. And when I finish, the appropriate response with me will be, Amen. Lord, even if the fig tree does not blossom, and there's no fruit on the vines, if the yield of the olive fails and the fields produce no food, even if the flock disappears from the fold and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet, still, I will sing praises to God. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Amen.